Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, listeners. I want to thank our good friends at Slipped Disc for their enthusiastic support of Speaking Soundly. Be sure to check out slipdisc.com for the latest inside information on classical music now. Oh, and while you're here, could you do me a favor? If you like this show, follow it. It's pretty simple, really, and it's free. Just click the follow button on whatever podcast app you're listening to right now. And if you already follow the show, click the share podcast button and send Speaking Soundly to your friends and relatives that also like listening to candid and inspiring conversations with some of the best musicians on the planet. All right. So thanks again for the continued support. We really appreciate it. American singer and actress Mandy Gonzalez has graced Broadway with her powerful voice and fearless stage presence. She's best known for her notable roles like Angelica Schuyler in Hamilton and the iconic green witch Elphaba in Wicked. But originating the character Nina from Lin-Manuel Miranda's In the Heights would prove to be her most personal and groundbreaking role. It was the first piece I had been in where it's an all-Latino cast. That was unheard of. To be in a show based on a Latino family that everybody could relate to, there was nothing like that experience. You're listening to Speaking Soundly, a backstage pass to today's biggest stars of the music world. I'm your host, David Krause, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with inspiring performers about their creative process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. Since I'm talking to an actual Skyler sister from Hamilton, I have to confess, I had a chance to see Hamilton in previews because my wife sent me down to Times Square. We had the night off to see a yeah. show. And she was like, go down to Times Square, see what new shows are out. And I'm looking at the shows and there's this new show called Hamilton. And I asked what it was about. And the guy said, well, it's like this new rap musical about the founding fathers. It's about three hours. And I said, no, thanks. Ah! And I walked away. So <laughs> oh, it wasn't man. smart. So, yeah, it's good to finally get that off my chest. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad that you could talk to me about it because I can't imagine how you must have felt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My family doesn't let me forget that. Oh God. 
But you're in that show for six years. Yes. Yeah. Well, it was actually four and a half because we were uh, down from the pandemic for a year and a half. But I think I counted it. It was like 1,400 shows or like a little bit more than that. That's a lot of shows. Yes. Night after night, you're giving your all. Where do you find the energy and does the repetition of it ever get to you? I absolutely love what I do. And when you're in a show like Hamilton, where, you know, I've been in shows before <laughs> that that don't make it. So there's a big difference when you're in a show like Hamilton and everybody wants to be there and everybody has been waiting for years to see the show. They maybe got tickets for a Christmas gift or, you know, a right. birthday. And so there's this energy in the theater for a show like this. And Right when the lights go down, people start applauding. For an actor, there's nothing like that. It's so exciting. And so I think that's how I get through the eight shows a week. It's not easy, but it's my job. And it's uh, those are the things that I find that are so exciting. And the thing about repetition is you're always finding something new within the characters. And I think if you can find a joy in that and fun, then you should continue doing it. If you feel, you know, jaded or like, why am I doing this? Then go do something else. You know, I have always absolutely loved, uh, loved what I do. But 1400 times. Yes. I mean, that's a lot. And the other thing is that you're in a company of people, most of whom have been doing it longer than you. And you're all making it look like opening night every night. Absolutely. Are there things that are obvious to you that the audience would never pick up on? Like, what is the audience not seeing that you clearly are? Um, the sign-up list. Once you're in a long-running show and it's a hit, I've been in a couple now uh, with Wicked right. and Hamilton. It's never the same show because the cast is always different. Somebody's sick. Somebody's on vacation. You know, somebody's making their Broadway debut for the first time. So there's always this excitement and that's definitely something that the audience doesn't see unless it's a main character and then they can see who's in the show that day with their program like they get these little slips that say this person's out today and right um but it's it's that it's that joy of like who am i on with today and what are they going to bring so i play trumpet in an orchestra for a living which means I'm always in front of music i almost never have to memorize what uh... i'm playing you don't get that luxury. No. <laughs> Everything you do has to be memorized. Every note you sing, every yeah. move that you make. Can the muscle memory needed to perform on stage like that get in the way of your creative impulse or can it work in tandem somehow? Gosh, it depends. You know, I think that they definitely, you hope they work in tandem and you hope that you can be perfect and everything goes great. But we all know uh, we're human and things can go awry. And if you're in a show like Hamilton, that you kind of get on this train and it just keeps going. You can't stop. And so if there is a mess up, everybody knows. Everybody knows you kind of, we call it like the white room that you get into where you're just kind of lost. And then all of a sudden you'll get back on beat. And that's uh, that's a horrible feeling because you feel like, well, oh my gosh, I messed up. And is that going to happen next time? You can't psych yourself out. You got to go, okay, I'm human. And this happened this night and tomorrow it's going to be better. And that's the joy of theater. And, you know, yay for live music, right? Yeah, right. Yep. 
in those moments, that white room where everything just kind of stops, yeah. does time truly stand still? Because a lot of times you're actually doing stuff as that's happening. Totally. So what is that moment like? It's awful. Yeah. <laughs> in that moment, it feels like, I, I don't know, it feels like, oh, was that 20 minutes? Did 20 minutes go by? And somebody <laughs> say, no, it was 30 seconds. And then you got back on it. Well, as terrifying as that sounds, I bet it was nothing compared to the experience of replacing a main character in a show like Hamilton. I mean, yeah. the show's already running, so you don't get a full rehearsal process like everybody else, right? I've replaced in a show before. I've replaced in Wicked. And that experience, uh, you really you just get to rehearse with the stage manager and the dance captain. And then your first introduction to the cast is uh, put in rehearsal. And a put-in rehearsal is when you're in your costume, everybody else is in street clothes, and you get to perform with the cast, and then the next day you start your performances. So but, time out. You're the only one in costume. Everybody else is in street clothes. Yes. I've had nightmares like that. <laughs> yes, that's called a put-in rehearsal. And especially as Elphaba and Wicked, you're the only one. You're you're the only one that's green at all, but you're the only one in this world that's, you know, Oz. Is that just surreal? It's so surreal. And and it's so nerve-wracking because you want so many things. You want it to go well. You want the other actors to feel, like, comfortable with you. They're used to doing it with other people. You don't want to, you know, rock the boat too much, but you want to bring your own interpretation of the role. So there's a lot of those kind of feelings. And I think with um, being a part of Hamilton and being able to rehearse with the Chicago company, I really got to have a rehearsal process. But I felt really lucky that I felt very confident in the interpretation that I was bringing to this character that was so loved. And then the development of In the Heights. Yes. Having started that from the original cast, being in that room when that happened. It, my daughter said, please don't make any stupid dad jokes about being in the room when it happened. But oh, I, no, I, just, I love sorry. it. I mean, but that's why that lyric is so everybody relates to it, because everybody wants to be in the room where it happens. You know, right. When I started with In the Heights, I was invited to go and meet Lin-Manuel Miranda, Tommy Kale, and Alex Lacamoire, and they hired me to do the reading. And the first day, we opened the books, and Lynn said, I know you guys don't know any of the songs, so I'm just going to sing everything. And he started, and it was lights up on Washington Heights, up at the break of day, and Alex just started playing. We were just like, who is this guy? This is amazing, and how can we be a part of this forever? From the first note. It wasn't just the first note. It was his energy. It was this energy of, yes, you know, this confidence and the things that he was singing. And it, it just was like nothing I had ever heard on Broadway. So I was asked to go with them when they turned it into workshop. And then I was asked to go when they went off Broadway and then asked to go to Broadway. And um, and then running up at the Tony Awards at Radio City, like to get uh, Best Musical all together. You know, it was the first piece I had been in um, where it's an all Latino cast. That was unheard of, you know. Uh, usually it's one of us that's hired in a show. And it's like, okay, we hired one, so we're good. And to be in a show where it's like, oh, these people understand where I come from and my family. And uh, we were telling a story that is based on a Latino family that everybody could relate to, there was nothing there. And there still will be nothing like that experience. It sounds like In the Heights was very near and dear to your heart, but mm -hmm. Washington Heights is 
a world away from where you grew up in Santa Clarita, California. Mm -hmm. Did you have a hard time relating at all to that character that embodied Washington Heights? No, I don't think I had that at all. You know, my family was working class. My father grew up migrating across the United States uh, as a farm worker. And so I knew what it meant to fight for things and to want a better life for the people coming after you. And I felt that the character Nina Rosario was very much a reflection of that first generation Latino that everybody puts their dreams into and wants more. And I wanted more, but not just for myself, but for my family. I always felt a responsibility to make them proud. And that's why it was universal, because that story can happen in Washington Heights and that story can happen where I'm from, you know, in a small town in California, uh, as long as you know what it is to belong to a community. So your father is Mexican. Your mm -hmm. mother is Jewish by way of Poland. Yes, yeah. and Romania. What an amazing combination. I bet you grew up with the best food. Absolutely. How did your parents meet? My parents met uh, as pen pals during the war. So my father was drafted to the Vietnam War and my mom wanted to join the Peace Corps. And my mom is from like the Valley in California. And her parents were like, no. So she did this other thing, which was write to soldiers that maybe didn't have anybody to write to. And one of those soldiers was my father. And uh, I didn't know about this story until I was a little bit older and I found all these letters in the closet. And my mom was like, yeah, these are letters and this is what happened, but nobody should ever read the letters, they're private. And you know, I'm like, a, I was a nosy kid and I still am very nosy. So I read all of the letters and um, in one of the letters, my father, he didn't know what it meant to be Jewish and what that means. Cause my mom said, well, this is what I am and this is where my background is from. And so in the letters, she kind of has to explain to him like what that means and what that's about. And, uh, but when he came back from the war, uh, he didn't have much, but he had a car and a sense of direction, and he showed up on her doorstep. And the rest is history, and they just... History? That's a, that's a musical. Yeah, right? It kind of writes itself. <laughs> yeah, so they just, you know, I had a very American life, which is I had a, a bubby and an abuelita. And I'm so glad that I did, because I learned a lot uh, from a young age about tolerance. And I think some people don't know or don't think about that until, you know, they're older. Did you grow up in a particularly musical household? I did. You know, uh, my father used to sing in a band when he was young. And so there was a lot of music around the house. My mom loved the Beatles, but they both worked full time. And so I spent a lot of time with my bubby and she um, loved musicals. And I was the only grandchild that would sing back with her. And so she was like, wow, what are we going to do? Like, this kid has talent. So <laughs> she didn't know what to do. You know, I don't come I don't come from that world. And so there was a dinner theater uh, down the street from my house where you could see a show and get a meal. And uh, she took me to that dinner theater. And then she went and talked to the actors afterwards and asked them how I could get lessons. And, and it's because of her that my life in this crazy business began. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, you'd go on to pursue a music ed degree at yes. California State University. Mm -hmm. Did you want to become a music teacher? Or was that a, a fallback of sorts in case this Broadway career didn't work out? No, I think I wanted to just go to college. I think that it was a college that wasn't too far from my family, uh, CalArts. And 
it had a really good theater program. And that's what all of my peers that were interested in that world were doing. And so that's when I was like, well, I have to do that too. And then I went for a year and then I auditioned um, to be a backup singer for Bette Midler at a random open call. And and I got that job and away from school I went. <laughs> I want to ask you about that because I have a daughter. She's uh, in college as an actress now, but she went to LaGuardia Performing Arts here in, in New York City and, yeah. and she, like musical theater and dance and singing is her life. And I take her to these rehearsal studios on 54th Street mm -hmm. for auditions and lessons and things like that. And there mm -hmm. would be, you'd get out of the elevator and there's just rooms teeming with dancers and singers and actors all auditioning for like one role. Right. She was undeterred by these cattle calls. Because she loves it. Yeah, but as her father. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was really hard to witness. Was it difficult for your parents who were a coast away? to watch you enter this lion's den of a profession? You know what? I have never asked them. I think when I moved to New York away from them, that's when it was like, well, I don't know if this is, you know, the right thing for you. I'm worried and all these kind of things. And I said, don't worry about it. It'll just be a year. And it's been over 22 years that I, that I have lived in New York and I've been a working actor. So my father just always uh, wanted me to work yeah. and make a living and uh, get health insurance and all those kind of practical things. But, you know, I didn't think about that when I was starting. And um, But I think I just wanted it so much. Whether or not anybody was deterring or worried or any of those things, it was like I just had this bullet idea. Well, when you were 19 and you got that, Bette Midler's show as a backup singer, yeah. you're touring the country, you're staying in swanky hotels, you're playing stadiums like Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Did you think at 19 years old you had reached the pinnacle of your profession or was there a part of you that wanted to be the headliner, something bigger? You know, I'll tell you, David, um, it's very interesting because at the end of every show, the backup singers would stand in the back and sing her last number. And as I'm singing this, I could see Bet, you know, standing on the stage. And I just thought, that's where I want to be. And it was just something in my brain that just said, like, I want to be in the front. I don't know if I've always felt that way. But in that moment, that was like, oh, OK, this is just the beginning for me. Um, you would, at some point garnered the nickname The Beast because <laughs> of your vocal strength. Were you born with this power or was it something that you cultivated and learned? It's definitely something that I learned along the way. I think I was born with a gift and I was born to express myself through music and it's something that I feel so lucky to have because it's an expression of everything of who I am. But I used to sing a lot uh, with my grandmother and we used to sing a lot of like Judy Garland songs and things like that and so that's where I started to develop this sound that's called the belt. But it would kind of tire me out, you know, doing that all the time. And it wasn't until I think I was about 10 years old when I was introduced to Tina Turner's music. And then I started to sing with her and I started to delve into like Aretha Franklin and Whitney Houston. And I wanted to sound like them. And so I started to find this place between the belt and my head voice that was like a, a mix between the two, which helps me do eight shows a week where I can stay healthy and, and that kind of thing. But it was uh, it was those singers, those women that 
that taught me how to sing, like unbeknownst to them. So after being on tour, you moved to New York City Mm -hmm. and you were, of all things, a coat check girl (laughs) while you took auditions and dreamt of a life on Broadway. I mean, could your life at that point have been any more cliche? I know. (laughs) I had because um, as a lot of kids, uh, they have to pay their own way. You know, my parents, they worked hard, but they didn't have the extra money for me to support me out in my dreams. And so I had to provide my own rent and my own groceries and all that kind of stuff. And so I worked at Dean and DeLuca bagging groceries. Did you enjoy the hustle of it all or was it oh was it yeah an, i love the hustle yeah it wasn't yeah. it wasn't precarious for you no i mean there was that moment where i would break down and be like it's never gonna happen and, uh, and then i would cry and uh and then i would pick myself up and keep going but that's the life of an artist of an actor <laughs> yeah well it picked up and you were in a show called eli's coming you win an award mm-hmm. for that you gain the attention of the disney people they put you in wicked uh, i mean i'm oversimplifying this but you finally land your first original show called Dance of the Vampires, and the reviews come in, and while they say the performers are great, the show falls short. Mm-hmm. One of the reviews said, you'll enjoy it if you bring low expectations and earplugs. <laughs> it, that must have been devastating. Oh, God. People were so, so cruel because they think for some reason that you're in this show that it's your fault that it didn't work or it's your fault that this didn't happen. And, um, you know, it wasn't. It was just what happens sometimes. Sometimes shows make it, sometimes they don't. But the work is the same and the people that are putting it together are the same. And I learned so much about myself. I learned um, how strong I am and how much – because I had somebody come up to me and and say, well, you're probably going to, you know, throw in the towel and, like, go back home and – you know, after this. And I was like, why? What do you mean? And she's like, well, you know, it's just really hard, you know, all these things. And I said, well, I'm going to let John Simon from New York Magazine determine my career. Like, F you. (laughs) My family worked a lot harder to be part of this country, and I can work just as hard being part of Broadway. So I wasn't going to let the culture at that time or what people thought a leading lady should look like because I didn't look like anybody that was on the stage before. The only people that I had had in my past to look at and to admire were people like Priscilla Lopez and Cheetah Rivera and Daphne Rubin Vega. And, you know, when I had people write, like, she's not the girl next door, it was like, what does that mean? I am the girl next door. And, and in today's culture, we would talk about those things and they wouldn't even write that or they'd have to put an apology up but people talked about my looks and all those kind of things from that and I think as a 24 year old that was a really hard thing to and as a woman it was a really hard thing to go through but I made it and I I became a bigger advocate I think for myself and I put my worth in so much more than just what a show would do you know and I think um it also brought up a lot of like things that I thought about myself, you know, from being a part of two cultures, like never feeling like I belonged, having Jewish relatives say, oh, you don't look Mexican. And then you would have a Mexican relative say like, oh, you don't look Jewish. And it's like, what does that mean? It brought up all these thoughts about myself and that I I hadn't dealt with before. Um, 
But then there's a reason everything happens because I had to deal with it head on and kind of go, this is me and just keep going. Well, you've been a part of it for a long time now and you obviously love it and people love to watch you on stage. What is it about performing that really speaks to you? I think it's the, I think it's human nature to want to express yourself. And I think that we all got to see a little bit of what we were missing during the pandemic when we had those moments at our house where somebody was doing a concert online and we could all tune in and that would lift us up. Music and art has been lifting us up throughout our lifetime. And I think that life without the arts is just not life. Well, you've continued this good work by forming your fearless squad. Can you talk to me about that? It sounds like the next Marvel movie coming out. What exactly is it? Um, Well, that would be great. Uh, It is, you know, I had a lot of young people writing to me at the theater about feelings of loneliness, uh, feelings that they didn't belong. And I felt like if people didn't have a place to be, I've been so lucky in my life, you can be part of my hashtag fearless squad. And I put it out there. And I said, who's with me? And I had no idea that hundreds of thousands of people would want to be a part of it. So I came up with squad rules and anybody can be a part of the fearless squad. You just have to follow the rules. And it's, I held your hand in mine and together we change the world and we help each other when we fall. We embrace differences. We look for the good and we dream big and together we're fearless. And and that's how it started for me. And it it has connected me with people all over the world. You know, Malala is a part of the fearless squad. People that I would never have met and admire that are doing such wonderful things in our world to inspire me as a parent, you know, and as a person. That's amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, David. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. In the coming weeks, we'll be sharing some of our favorite episodes from the first season while we work on new interviews with Grammy Award winners Bela Fleck, Janae Bridges, Barbara Hannigan, and so many more. To keep up with the show, follow us on Instagram at speakingsndly and visit our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.